Today we move to chapter 18 and what we discover from God's word is that Elijah, far from being the troubler of Israel, was in fact the prophet of the Lord. 58 years had passed in which seven kings had managed to lead Israel into sin. Like popular modern preachers, they gave people what they wanted rather than what they needed. There was a performance of religion, but we would not call it worship. They were not giving God his worth in their life. They did not acknowledge his sovereign place over everything. Wicked leaders ordained men who were never called by God to serve him. Drunkenness, murder and every form of evil were the marks of their life. King Ahab lived as his father had done. And according to 1 Kings 16, he did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all those who lived before him. Imagine having that on your tombstone. (laughs) The prophet Elijah was fearless for God. The Lord had prepared his servant by solitude and miracle. He had to understand that patience is an essential element in strength. He had to learn obedience through the things that he suffered before he could call Ahab and Israel to repentance. There are three challenges here. First of all, there's the challenge to Ahab in verses 17 to 19. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? (laughs) Elijah was quick to reply, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have you have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel. Let them meet with me on Mount Carmel. Bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 Asherah attendants who eat at Jezebel's table. Ahab saw Elijah as the troubler of Israel, and persecuted him. The story moves then from the persecution that God's challenge provokes to the power that God's call provides. Israel was named God's people. Prophets of Baal worshipped the sun god, renowned apparently for making fire. Ahab assembled his prophets on Mount Carmel. A nation with its king came together to take up the challenge of one man. They were there to settle the the question, whom will we worship? God's man, Elijah, was saying, make up your mind. Choose today. Elijah was fearless. He showed great courage and demonstrated strong faith in God. He stands in that same tradition described in Hebrews 11 of the prophets who by faith subdued kingdoms. The challenge to Ahab 
And then secondly, there's the challenge to Israel from verse 21. Elijah asked the people, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. There were signs that they feared Jehovah. They have come to the mountain as commanded by Elijah. But sinners are as easily moved by superstition as they are by true fear of the Lord. You can see that in practices in churches even. These people, of course, knew how to curry favour with their hapless king. More importantly, they knew how to curry favour with his idolatrous wife, Jezebel. There's a decision to be made. How long will you waver between two opinions? The prophet rebukes here not unbelief, but indecision. Decide now for the Lord or for the idols. Religions which are completely opposed cannot both be true. You cannot serve two masters. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, well, follow him. There's an echo here, of course, from Joshua's day in Joshua 24. God's people had not learned then the basic lesson of faith in one. He said, choose you this day whom you will serve. Go one way or the other. There's a declaration to be given. Follow him who is God. Declare your commitment. There are echoes here too from Moses' day in Exodus 32. You remember the people sat down to drink, as they do in our society continually, and then intoxicated, mindlessly rose up to play in a disgusting manner. Moses said to them, Who is on the Lord's side? Come over and declare your allegiance for him. The challenge in our day is focused on the unique place of Jesus as our dying saviour and risen Lord. If the Christ of the scriptures is the true saviour and Lord, then surrender to him. If the Christ of modern humanist theology is right, then follow him. Jesus said, deny yourself and follow me. The popular call is please yourself and do as you like. Both lifestyles cannot be true. The clearest writer on Elijah is a man called A.W. Pink, who was driven out of, uh, I think, Stanmore Baptist in 1920 because he preached too straight from the Bible. He says, one who requires the uncompromising rejection of sin and another who allows you to go on being sinful cannot both be the Christ of God. Decide, Israel, and declare yourselves. Many hundreds of years after Elijah's challenge, there were Christian churches in Asia Minor, places like Sardis and Laodicea, 
You can read about them in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. God sent a message in a series of letters through his apostle John. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. I wonder what he'd say in Sydney today. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. But as for most of you, you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Now the Sovereign Lord is not happy when we are cold in our response towards his overwhelmingly generous love, but he prefers the attitude of coldness, apparently, rather than indecision and undeclared commitment. I wish you were either cold or hot, but because you are neither cold towards me nor on fire for me, I will cast you out, says the Lord. How long will you waver, Israel? That is the question with which the prophet challenged Ahab's people. And they said nothing. What could they say to the Lord's servant? Elijah's challenge revealed the unreasonableness of Israel's position. (laughs) Poor old Elijah, he felt so alone and rejected. Do you know that feeling when you're in company and you uphold the word of God and people become very, very edgy? They don't want to hear it. That's the reason here for Elijah's cry of anguish. Yes, he got it wrong. It was too extreme and God rebuked him. But you can understand it there in verse 22. I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. The rest have all sold out to the world. The challenge to Israel. And then thirdly, there's the challenge to Baal from verse 23. Elijah said, get two bulls for us. Let them choose for themselves. Let them cut them in pieces and put them on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and set it on the wood and I'll not set fire to it. You call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, what you say is good. The challenge was very great. 450 prophets of Baal against one prophet of the Lord. They're the same odds, by the way, that uh, Gideon faced in his day. Struggling against the might of the crumbling Roman Empire and the compromise of crumbled Israel, Paul boasted in the first century AD, if God is for us, who can be against us? It was a great trial. But the trial was fair. Baal was called the sun god, 
Surely, if anyone can bring fire from heaven, the sun god ought to be able to do it. Of course, we know from our understanding of scripture that Satan could have sent fire. He uses all sorts of dramatic tricks to trick people day and night. But God did not permit Satan to do that on this occasion. If you haven't read it lately, I urge you to go to the book of Job, chapter 1, from about verse 9, and have a look at the interview that God had with Satan on that occasion. Satan, get into my office. Satan came in. Have you seen my man Job? Oh, he's a good man. And of course, in his arrogance, Satan sneered at God and said, oh, let me make him sick, then he'll curse you. And God said to him, okay, you make him sick, but don't you dare touch his life. You see, Satan is pictured as a dog on a chain. He can only go so far. If you're foolish enough to get into his territory, of course he'll bite you. And some of us here could probably testify to how we've been mauled for wandering around in Satan's territory. Don't go near him. But always remember, however bitten you've been, Satan can only go as far as God allows him. And there on Mount Carmel on that day, God limited his ability. Error, of course, is best shown up by revealing truth. That's why we proclaim the glorious gospel of God's love revealed in the life, death, resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus. That's the power for salvation. We give deceivers every opportunity to do their worst. Elijah invited uh, the Baal worshippers to go first in this performance on the mountain. Verse 25, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. Now there are two things that leap out of this whole passage. The first is the cry of despair and the voice of silence. From morning till noon they called on the name of Baal. They followed apparently that superstitious idea that to have someone's name or even a God's name was to give you power over that thing. Baal, answer us, they shouted. And they danced around the altar. There was quite a commotion on earth as they pranced among the rocks and churned up the dust. I hope they didn't get hay fever like I do. But the brassy heavens remained silent. There was no response. No one answered. They leaped around the altar. I notice my old revised version says they limped around the altar. Perhaps they're getting tired. Or perhaps their feet have been cut by the stones. The whole performance is so grotesque. And as a world traveller, I can confess 
quite apart from what I see in this God-forsaken land, idolatry strips away dignity. Their hoarse, harsh imprecations to the unknown deity were rewarded with silence. Their vain repetition underlines the futility of all man-made religion. At best, it produces emotional fervour which ebbs and flows as circumstances change. There's no evidence here of the personal, sweet communion which Christ brings between man and God. These false prophets knew nothing of Judaism's God, the God of Abram, Isaac and Jacob. They cannot say, as Christians do, Father. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Verse 27, shout louder. Surely he's a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or travelling. Maybe he's sleeping and needs to be awakened. Midday passed. And they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But verse 29 says, and you might want to underline it, there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Admittedly, sarcasm is not the noblest of weapons. But when exposing the absurdity and the evil of idolatry, sarcasm is an effective tool. Proclaimers of the gospel are involved in a life and death struggle for the salvation of men and women made in God's image. It's no time to be nice or careful. Thousands are dying daily in ignorance of the Saviour's love. Idolatry rejects rejects the true God of heaven and earth. His glory is stolen and given to some other person or thing. Elijah's not dealing here with simple, uneducated village people for whom we would have every sympathy. The prophets of Baal were the religious specialists of their day. They're voracious wolves, tearing at the vitals of Israel's faith. The shepherd of the Lord cannot rest until he rescues the lambs from their teeth. Elijah taunted them to do their best, but by evening there was no response. No one answered No one paid attention. The cry of despair and the answer of silence. In contrast with that, there is the sacrifice of faith and the descent of fire. Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. He's had enough of this nonsense. This was for all to see. Elijah is no magician. He has no tricks up his sleeve. A sacred calm settled over the barren ground, although the air was charged with expectancy. 
What an anticlimax to the day's feverish activity. Elijah quietly gathered stones, just twelve, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, In future, you shall be known as Israel, which means struggling with God. The time has come for Israel's descendants to stop struggling with their true king. A sacrifice was prepared according to the law of the Lord. Elijah drenched the altar, the wood, and the sacrifice with 12 jars of water. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Elijah began to pray at the time of the evening sacrifice. Will you notice that pattern? The prophet honoured the Lord in the construction of the altar, in the preparation of the sacrifice, and even in the time that he prayed. He simply did what God's law commanded. No tricks. We need to be reminded so often that godly service is not doing something for Christ and his church. It's doing what Christ commands us to do. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 36, Elijah stepped forward and prayed, and what a prayer it is. If your prayer's a bit barren, go back and have a look at this one. O Lord God of Abram, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. Let it be known that I am your servant and that I've done these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their back, their hearts back again. Elijah's prayer is so clearly addressed to the God of Abram, Isaac and Israel. This is the God who covenants with people. There's no presumption here on the part of Elijah. He does not pray by right. He prays by faith to the God who speaks first. Elijah's not interested in public relations. He's concerned for the glory of the Lord's name. His confidence is in God. His formula is always the same. We found it in chapter 17 at verse 1 where he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand. God lives. I am his servant. Here is a man under orders. And so he prays. Let it be known that I've done these things, not through my own power or insight, but at your word. Show Israel that you are God. Turn them back in repentance and faith. The good shepherd here is filled with jealousy for the Lord's holy name and he's motivated by love for the Lord's wayward people. The short prayer of faith achieves in a moment 
what a whole day of idolatrous incantation cannot do. The fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil. It even dried up the water in the trench. Now you ask, why fire? Well, presumably God told Elijah to ask for it. Fire from the Lord showed up the falsehood of the claims made for Baal, the sun god. He couldn't do it. God could. But of course, as Presbyterians you'll know, it was by the burning bush that Moses received his call to save Israel. A pillar of fire illuminated the darkness as God's people travelled home from Egypt. The coming of the power of God's spirit on the day of Pentecost was marked with tongues of fire. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. That's an ancient principle of scripture. Sacrifices were slain and then consumed with fire, according to the Lord. A pure substitute dying in the place of sinners. In Elijah's day, the fire fell on the bullock and not upon guilt-laden Israel. Under the new covenant, Jesus Christ is the perfect lamb of sacrifice. He died for all who will turn away from idolatry and worship only the one true living God. The historian says in verse 39 that when all the people saw the fire fall, they fell on their faces. I bet they did. Rather shocking, wasn't it? And they cried out, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. But Elijah wasn't distracted by that temporary reaction. He commanded the seizure of the false prophets of Baal these monsters who were destroying Israel at a great rate. Don't let any of them get away, he said. And he had them taken down by the brook Kishon and exterminated there. Sadly, Israel's resolve to serve the Lord did not last. Faith that's founded on miracles needs to deepen into something more reliable. Otherwise, it slips away as we've seen in church history of the past 2,000 years of causes coming and going. But our Lord Jesus fed more than 5,000 people from a few crumbs in the first century AD. Those who saw it said, according to John chapter 6, ah, this is the prophet who comes into the world. As you read down through John 6, you discover that when our Lord called on them to feed upon his every word, they grumbled. And You hear them saying in John 6, 60, Oh, this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? And by the time you get to verse 66, John comments, many of his so-called disciples turn back from following him. God gave Israel a word to obey, just as he's given us a word 
to obey. Israel's history, sadly, is taken up mainly with the story of the way they failed to obey the Lord. Give us a sign, was always their cry. Then we'll believe. (laughs) It seems that there was a little resolve which followed the incident on Mount Carmel, but for many people it did not last. There was little evidence in changed lives of holiness, which in the end is the ultimate example of worship. Even unregenerate people, those not born by the Spirit of God, can appear respectable and religious. I've seen them in churches all over the world. In the same way as those who are regenerate in Christ can act lustfully and carelessly, as we all have to admit. The point of this whole passage is the crises which God allows in our lives individually or as a nation reveal the secret attitudes of our hearts. Whether we are new creatures in Christ or merely whitewashed worldlings under a veneer of religion. The question is, where does that leave you today? A whitewashed worldling sitting in a church pew? I was going to say going nowhere, but you're going somewhere. (laughs) The question is, where are you going? Well, only you and I can answer that for ourselves. So I'm going to ask now that we just have a moment of quietness in which the Spirit of God convicts each of us. Don't leave this place without getting it right this morning. Whom will you serve when you go from here? And after the quietness, I will pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to the beginning of this historic week in the land where we now live, and we have a decision to make in terms of how we'll be governed, we're just so conscious that the laws of our land, the ones being made even now, have been sanitised to wipe away the basic principle for life in your world, namely that the Lord is God and that those whom he has made should follow him. 
each of us in our relationships, family, friends, the community, the world of nations, are faced with the same challenge as the people of Israel on this occasion, as at so many other occasions in their life. The question still lingers there in the air, whom will you serve? The Lord, who is God, or the fanciful dreams of sinful mankind which have created the religions and philosophies, the politics of our day. Father, move by your spirit to convict each of us to stick with the truth of your word the unchanging word of the unchanging God in the age when knowledge is changing so rapidly together with its laws. We do pray for grace to put our trust in the one who epitomized in himself all that your word had ever said. He was the word made flesh who dwelt among us. And Jesus says to those for whom he died and by whose resurrection have the hope of eternal life, you know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We know our weakness, Lord, and we see it all around us. It's reinforced in the structures of our society. But we pray that by your grace we will know the truth and put it into practice as we go from this place today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.